So it's always uh, a little intimidating to have the introduction start with 40 years ago, what with my not having been alive 40 years ago. Uh, also somewhat intimidating to be told uh, that I am supposed to be here to inspire. Uh, that was, I, I thought, like the evening news, I would maybe do well by frightening you, you know, always, always lead with the murder. So I'm going to try to uh, be inspiring. Uh, I, uh, I may succeed only in scaring you, which that'll do too. Um, so first, thank you very much to uh, the library community for inviting me, for making this possible. Uh, the very nice things that Rick said about EFF, we obviously are huge fans of the library community, and I'm constantly amazed the many, many places that the library community is fighting for issues that matter. Uh, I was once quoted in the press as joking that the trouble with the Motion Picture Association was every time I term turned over a rock, they were already there working years ahead of me. Um, well, I'm happy to say that when it comes to librarians, the library community is every bit as much on the issues, uh, you know, far beyond uh, many of the uh, issues that we at EFF are able to work on. So thanks to the library community uh, for their work up to now and their work in the future as well. Uh, so the topic of the conference, correction, of course, uh, I wanted to, it'll come as no surprise to any who know me and who know the EFF that I'm going to say, oh, yes, we need a correction, of course. <laughs> that we are on the wrong course when it comes to copyright, certainly from the point of view of libraries. And uh, I'd like to cover three areas that I think uh, may be a little beyond the radar for the rest of the conference. You'll hear from experts for the next two days who know an enormous amount about copyright law, who will tell you a great deal about the intersection between library needs and priorities and some of the copyright law changes that we've seen in the last uh, several years. Uh, I thought I would actually start by addressing issues that are perhaps, at least at first appearance, a bit farther afield uh, from those core questions. Uh, but I think you'll come to appreciate that they are perhaps as important and maybe for certain libraries with certain uh, contexts even more important than formal copyright law questions. Um, so uh, it's clear to me and I'm sure to all of you, and I, you obviously know far more about libraries and their challenges than I possibly could, but it seems to me as a longtime fan of libraries and library patron, uh, libraries at least the notion of library that springs to my mind, and I think most lay people's minds when they think of libraries, sort of the retail library experience, their hometown libraries, their university libraries, their high school, elementary school libraries. Uh, that notion of library in some ways is under a great deal of pressure from a great deal of different directions right now. Uh, and a lot of that's been made possible by fantastic new technologies, which as we all know, can be good things, bad things, and almost always, if nothing else, disruptive things. So I see, for example, uh, the traditional core that people think of when they think of libraries, access to the printed page, to books, to text. Uh, that is still, I think, uh, uh, the, the place where libraries retain their kind of holy shrine notion, although I see even now the headlines filled with things like Google's announcement that they are going to digitize millions of books, followed just, I think, last week by the European Union and what can only be characterized as a fit of, of, of jealousy or envy, saying, oh, no, we're going to digitize the European books, you hear. So you have now apparently competing uh, international efforts to digitize books, neither of which, certainly in the Google case, 
in partnership with certain libraries, but not in the traditional sense of libraries. Google will be making it available through its own servers. Google is a private corporate entity uh, interested in many things, but certainly uh, profit is uh, more on their mind than I think the typical library. Uh, you also have, of course, efforts like Project Gutenberg, nonprofit, grassroots efforts to digitize and make text available, not through the auspices of any formal library per se, but taking on some of that role. And of course, in the audiovisual realm, things are much more chaotic. Uh, their libraries are facing competition both from authorized paid services. I always think, you know, these days, your typical student of film probably will turn to Netflix before he or she turns to a library for access to much of the catalog of film, obviously not all of it, but a pretty a growing piece of it. Um, similarly, you have, I think, as someone who is a big user of Amazon, uh, not just the retail portion of Amazon, because of course, as all of you are vividly aware, the enormous portion of our culture is not available. It is out of print, it's not for sale. Uh, through any retail outlet of the kind. But if you look at Amazon for a moment, you realize that, in fact, it's increasing emphasis on resale, on used books, on uh, used DVDs, on all of the used products. Essentially, they are uh, using the first sale exception in ways that are pretty powerful. Um, when I am looking today for an out-of-print book, the first place I look is Amazon, not my local library, because in a incredibly large number of cases, Amazon can get me that book at a very low price. Uh, and if it turns out I ever, if I only wanted to read it, I can then flip it and sell it myself and thereby end up paying very little net once I've uh, uh, finished that. I expect there will be other businesses that will make that even easier. That's the kind of business opportunity the internet really enjoys. Uh, sort of turn into a Netflix for books, a Netflix for anything you can think of, this kind of churn, you send it to someone, they send it on. So there are lots of those competitive challenges, of course, and probably the most important one to mention, the irony of here, of course, I always mention this to content owners, the competition of what I call the darknet, the fact that increasingly people can get a larger and larger set of works particularly music and movies, although I think increasingly other works as well, uh, by simply downloading them from unauthorized sources. Uh, now, while that is a market threat and a competitive threat, or at least perceived to be such by the content industries, I would argue that it is also to some extent a threat to libraries as well, or at least a competitor to libraries. Uh, if, in fact, the dark net, the sort of unauthorized, cutting-edge new technologies are able to meet and deliver services to you know, the public, to citizens seeking access to works more quickly, more effectively, more cheaply, more innovatively uh, than the library community can, because of course you all, to the extent you're associated with institutions that can be sued, uh, have to be much more, quote unquote, careful than some of the dark net uh, entities out there. I think that's an important uh, competitor to keep an eye on. Uh, I think we would all be served uh, less well in a world where uh, people count on access to their cultural history to a dark net that is, while sometimes fast and cheap and all of those other things, also potentially unreliable uh, and a number of other things, certainly no, I think, adequate replacement for the libraries. And yet I worry that perhaps more and more people will find their way there. So in response to some of those things, I want to highlight just a few, just three areas in particular that we've been following 
where I think libraries are going to be facing interesting new challenges thanks to these technologies and thanks to what I, I guess I would call the penumbra of copyright, the, 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 the outside edges of some copyright questions. So I'm going to mention three of them today. And uh, one is technical protection measures, which I'm sure many of you have thought quite a bit about, uh, protected now by the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, the spread of so-called digital rights management technologies, digital locks that control how copyrighted works can be accessed, how often, by whom, uh, you name it, really. Any, any control is now possible. The second issue I'm going to touch on briefly is anonymity, an issue which I think many people don't think of as a copyright question, but which yet I think recently in particular will become increasingly wound up with concerns related to copyright, and which I think the library communities have traditionally had uh, a pretty robust commitment to the ability not only to afford the public the right to read, but to afford them to, the right to read without having their reading habits monitored, logged, recorded, and made available to others. Um, I think that's a priority, certainly, that we at EFF feel we share with the library community. And the third one I want to touch on is the question of the international aspects uh, that's on the uh, agenda, I think very importantly so. The fact that treaties today are rapidly constraining the kinds of things that we can do under American copyright law. And there's some rather telling examples. I think the library community has been involved, but I just want to flag it as an area where all of us should be devoting increased resources. Uh, although my, I was just telling my colleague the other day, if I have to become an international copyright law expert as well as an American copyright law expert, I feel I'm going to pull my hair out. Um, so let me say a few words about technical protection measures. For a long time, and this is not a new insight, and in fact is, is described in some detail, I think, in Rebecca Tushnet's paper, which will be discussed uh, tomorrow, I believe, um, there is uh, this recognition, and I think an important one, that the technology, the architecture, if you will, often determines the kinds of rights that users have. I mean, the library and its sort of classic function is to a large extent, I think, defined by the nature of the book. Uh, certain rights, the ability, well, whether copyright uh, uh, lawyers often will deny that they're rights, but I think it's fair to describe them as rights. The right to read, to lend sort of basic uh, shape, uh, and to do so anonymously uh, in many cases, uh, the sort of shape of the traditional library experience is to a large extent determined by the nature of the book, the physical thing, the book. The fact that copyright, that combined with the fact that copyright law has always said Many of the uses, in fact, pretty much all of the traditional uses of the book, are completely unregulated by the law. Uh, the reading of the book, you don't need permission from a copyright owner to read a book. Uh, the lending of a book, you don't need permission from a copyright owner to lend a book, to resell a book. You don't need permission to you know, excise a page of a book. Uh, there are lots of traditional uses uh, that are defined by the bookishness, if you will, of the book. Well, of course, that's all changed rapidly, in particular with audiovisual works, but also increasingly with the book itself, as the notion of book expands and becomes much more an amalgam of digital information rather than just words printed on the page. But certainly, I think the place we see it most vividly is in the audiovisual realm, where increasingly an enormous amount of our culture is being expressed. Uh, uh, you know, there's, I, I have great sympathy um, Get which movie it was that I just saw where one, oh, I shouldn't say movie, in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, 
Um, there's a great, there's a library, you should all be fans. The librarian is one of the chief protagonists in Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Uh, and in that, the librarian has a great soliloquy about the magic of the book and the feel of the page and the smell of the bite and the whole experience. And then he casts a bleak glance at a bank of computers and bemoans the fact that these devil's instruments lack all of those uh, very tangible features. Well, for better or for worse, I think we're stuck with a lot of uh, those machines today. In fact, an enormous amount of our access to culture today is mediated by a machine. Certainly with respect to video, right? But for a DVD player or a video cassette player, you really don't have the kind of unmediated access to the work that you might have in the past. Um, and the same is, of course, true for recordings of music and the like. And so suddenly we have to ask questions we didn't have to ask before. And the chief one being, who designs the machines? And in whose interests are the machines designed? Now, when looking at a book, you, these are not questions you have to ask, right? You pick up the book, you read the book. Sure, there's the question of who publishes the book and how do they publish it and all that, no question. But here, in, with respect to new media, audiovisual products in particular, we have this new question. Because you have content owners on the one side, the publishers. Again, that's not new or different. But you have now this new intermediary, the who designs the machines and in whose interests are those machines designed. Increasingly, we are seeing, I mean, for a long time, the notion has been that the technology vendors who build the machines, the video players, the audio cassette recorders, all of these devices, and the computer, perhaps most importantly, uh, are on our side. The sense being that they, of course, are proxies really for the user's interests. And we've seen this going back all the way into the 70s and the fights over the Betamax VCR, the consumer electronics industry carrying the banner, saying that home recording uh, should be viewed as a fair use. Uh, same thing with audio cassette recorders, the consumer electronics industry carrying that banner. And I should say they are continue to carry the ba banner in the, beta in the Grokster case as well. But I'd like to just for a moment mention a few examples where that old alliance is breaking down. Not because the technology companies are eager to abandon the interests of users, but because increasingly they feel they have little choice. They are being competitively pushed and uh, also sort of legally pushed into taking the side of the publisher against the user and against the interests, I think, also of the library community. So let me give you a few concrete examples. Um, one, DVD players, perhaps the best example because they're the most common, they're the most ubiquitous, but really a harbinger, I think, of things to come. DVD player, great thing, incredibly cheap, easy, you know, in lots of ways, a distinct improvement, no question. But to give you a library type example, or at least an example, I think, that will come close to what many of you are thinking about, I was contacted by a library a bit ago, uh, maybe two years ago now, that said, we, uh, are, we have language instruction. We have the Media Lab for doing language instruction as part of our kind of set of uh, activities to monitor and, and manage. And one thing that the instructors would like to do is use motion picture DVDs to teach foreign language because the DVDs, unlike the video cassettes that they replaced, have multiple language tracks built right into them. So you can, in a language uh, course, for example, assign a particular scene in a particular movie in Spanish or in you know, Italian or whatever language there is. 
This, of course, requires, they're, they're not generally interested in having the student watch the entire movie, right? They want to excerpt particular pieces to illustrate particular linguistic, you know, lessons that are important. Now, the trouble is you can't do that with any DVD player on the market today. There is no DVD player that will make copies of movies and then excerpt and rearrange excerpts of DVDs for your, you know, scholastic purposes. And thanks to the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, well, I should back up for a moment, not only does that machine not exist today, but no company can get a license to manufacture such a machine. And thanks to the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, anyone who tries to build such a machine without a license would be in violation of the law. Motion picture studios continue to maintain that it is illegal, essentially in all relevant circumstances, to make a copy of DVD content ever, period, uh, in digital form. Uh, so what happened? Right? We now have a situation where the builder of the machine has constrained or you know, certainly CE companies, consumer electronics companies, would argue that's not their choice. That's not the way they would build it if they had the choice. But the point is they don't have the choice. Um, we see this increasingly. The libraries have been uh, uh, forefront again in the vanguard, for which we're very grateful, in fighting the so-called broadcast flag for digital television, a rather obscure technology mandate that was handed down by the FCC that essentially will force the inclusion of content protection schemes in all future televisions. Uh, by, again, force of federal law, it will be unlawful to build a television that does not incorporate these features. Now, that in itself, I think, is troubling. But the long-term implications of that are, I think, even more dangerous. And that is that that becomes the, the, the camel's nose under the tent of the personal computer. And we've seen this already as well. The personal computer, in some ways, has always been counted on by those, uh, the, sort of those who depend or view technology as a proxy for our interests, an open innovation platform if any group of people uh, want to try to build a new feature in, if they think there's a market out there for it, they can build it, see what the market wants. It's given us an enormous amount of innovation, of course, also an enormous amount of disruption, as Rick said, absolutely. But in the aggregate, I think everyone would agree that the information revolution has been great, not just from the point of view of GDP and bottom line and all of that good stuff, but also from the point of view of access to the kind of knowledge, access to the kind of information that we now have through a few keystrokes and Google, right? So that is beginning to change. Uh, and this is what I want to flag as the key point in this uh, portion of my talk. The personal computer, the basic architecture of the personal computer is right now on the cusp of changing in fundamental ways that I think the library community and frankly all in the public interest community should be paying very close attention to. So I said the broadcast flag was the camel's nose under the tent here. I think that's right. Also, this, there's a parallel uh, regulation called plug and play that essentially governs cable and satellite television, which in my view is more important once you realize that 85% of all Americans get their television from either cable or satellite. So once federal regulations and inter-industry agreement incorporate these content protection mechanisms, this DRM, these digital locks, onto television, computers are almost inevitably next. 
because as anyone who's looked at any advertising or went to the Consumer Electronics Show or any reads any computer magazine will know, all of the computer companies are in a dead rush to do what they've been calling for years convergence. No computer company wants to build a computer that's not able to connect to your cable television. No computer company wants to build a, a computer that can't play DVDs or next generation DVDs, which come with their own set of content protection requirements, or your satellite television or broadcast television or all of the above. They are now going to be required to incorporate restrictions onto the personal computer if they want to continue to have access to those media sources. And that's coming. So we just had one of our staff technologists, it's a blessing to have staff technologists, uh, we just had one of them attend WinHack. Anybody go to WinHack? I didn't think so. WinHack is Microsoft's annual conference for Windows developers, for programmers and hardware vendors who basically have go, go to WinHack to say, what do we have to build to be compatible with the next version of Windows? Known currently as Longhorn, by the way, which is coming soon, they tell us, probably next year. Well, what we discovered by going there, the reason we sent our staff technologists there, was to figure out what was going on in the Microsoft platform, the platform that 95-plus percent of the world uses uh, in terms of content protection. What we discovered was an incredible amount of content protection is being baked into Windows precisely because Microsoft wants to be able to access your cable, your satellite, all of these media uh, sources in order to push their product into the living room. The quid pro quo for, for them to be able to do that is to essentially, and I hate to put it this way, but it's true, to betray the users. Rather than saying, how can we build a product that caters to the needs of our users, they are asking today a different question. They are asking a question, how can we today find a tolerable compromise between the requirements of our users and the requirements of content, whether expressed by regulation, whether expressed by uh, pressure from industry groups, however it's expressed, that's where it's coming from. And so today at WinHack, we discover, for example, keep an eye out for this, uh, all new Microsoft products down the line will include what's called the, uh, let me get it right here, the protected media path, which aims to secure every digital video and audio content all the way out to the analog output. Um, so there will be no ability to access digital versions of that content uh, inside the machine. Now, why does that matter from a library point of view? Well, I'd like to suggest, what are you going to do when the only computers you can buy, or at least 95 plus percent of the computers and applications you can buy, are no longer capable by their very design of sending any media content over the Internet. Right? If that is the case, then essentially your ability to provide the kind of distance learning and out-of-library uh, uh, access that you would like to provide is finished. I don't care what changes you get in the Copyright Act. I don't care what exceptions are already there in 108 for you. I don't care what your long-term goals are. None of that matters anymore because you can't buy a computer that is able to do those things. That's a relatively radical and bizarre notion, I think, for most people to swallow because, again, we assume 
Well, we're a market. Vendors will build us something. Computers are great that way. Well, if in fact the vendors have already had to make architecture-level changes that prevent those kinds of uses, I submit that's a serious concern, and we're already seeing that. And quite frankly, I hate to tell you, but much as I love the libraries, much as many Americans love the libraries, I don't think Microsoft will view the library community as a big enough market to justify developing a separate version of Windows, um, even if the Hollywood studios and uh, record labels would be comfortable with that anyway. So that's, I think, one big problem that we're facing. And currently, thanks to the DMCA, it's very difficult to have any recourse. And I think computer science professors are already running into this increasingly. What if you happen, okay, so you buy a Microsoft uh, Windows computer and you want to make changes to it so you are able to engage in distance learning activity, for example, that is lawful under copyright law? Well, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act tends not to care what your intended use is, and it would be forbidden, even though it might otherwise be legal under copyright law. And moreover, for a technology vendor to provide you the tools to evade those protections would put the technology vendor on the line. So you're put in a position where you yourself are forbidden from doing it, and a market, your need for the product will not ever develop in the marketplace because the technology vendors in the marketplace are forbidden from serving your demand. Um, I think that's a serious problem. Uh, Congressman Boucher, much to his credit, has introduced bills in the past that would attempt to ameliorate that part of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. Much to our disappointment in his latest offering of his bill, uh, now uh, numbered H.R. 1201, he has eliminated any reform to the tools provision. So even though under his bill technically you would have the right to circumvent a TPM, a technical protection measure, in order to make a legal use of a work, you still will never find a vendor who's able to build you that tool. I submit that in the digital age, as I mentioned before, the right to do something without a machine to let you do it isn't worth very much. The second issue I want to touch on is this question of anonymity. Um, we at EFF have been saying now for some time that we see uh, what I think uh, can be uh, plausibly termed the perfect storm for anonymity coming uh, uh, very soon, uh, already here probably. You see calls uh, from an incredible number of people who are upset about the Internet, people who are opposed to spam, people who are opposed to viruses, people who are concerned about terrorism, crime, uh, you know, indecency, identity theft, and perhaps most vocally people who are concerned about copyright infringement all of them are calling increasingly for one common thing, the end of anonymity online. The ability to monitor, the ability to trace, the ability to find the person doing whatever it is that they uh, disapprove of. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm no fan of spammers. I'm no fan of virus writers, although I think they do interesting innovation. <laughs> I'm no fan of a lot of the unlawful activity that goes on. But of course, in the pre-digital realm, anonymity was also usable and used for unlawful goals. Nevertheless, however, our Constitution has always recognized that anonymity is important for the rest of us, for those of us who are not interested in using anonymity to commit crimes, but instead those of us who are interested in anonymity for myriad perfectly lawful reasons, for protest, for criticism, 
for learning without worrying about the stigma that attaches when you learn about certain things. Um, for all of these uh, important reasons. Now, I worry that anonymity, especially in the realm of copyright, is now being put under an incredible amount of pressure. And I would suggest that increasingly libraries are finding themselves in the same position as ISPs on the one hand. Uh, increasingly, I find libraries are providing access to Internet services for their patrons. Uh, and strangely enough, in some ways, uh, libraries, at least some libraries, uh, sort of the retail end of the library spectrum, I, I assume, uh, are more and more like cyber cafes. Same way, providing terminal access, ability. And the first round in this fight was filtering, a fight that I'm sure all of you are quite familiar with, but with the whole going all the way to the Supreme Court about it. Um, I submit that the next fight will be about monitoring um, and will be about anonymity and the right and ability of libraries uh, and, frankly, any uh, provider of access to provide anonymous access. Uh, I think that fight is coming. Uh, I would call on uh, libraries, you know, decide where you stand. <laughs> decide now, because this is a fight that when it comes, it will come fast and furious. I'm quite convinced. Uh, you know, you can think of any number of pivotal acts, right? The first virus that brings down the Internet, the first spamming situation that compromises, you know, the ability of some uh, safety services provider to reach a needy person. Um, some would argue that they occur in identity theft meltdown that seems to fill the paper every other day. Or, of course, God forbid, a terrorist event that in any way has any even plausible nexus to anonymity. And I think almost immediately the calls will be universal monitoring, uh, you know, the whole set. So we at EFF, being troublemakers that we, uh, that we are, have already started building a technology infrastructure that enables anonymity online. It's called Tor. Um, I you know, suggest that folks uh, who are interested in this, it's still a little technical, uh, but I would, you know, be happy to answer questions about it. But the idea is, is to create a system on the Internet, a proxy network, if you will, can, consisting today of several hundred computers, we hope at some point it will consist of tens of thousands of computers, that is essentially our individual computers where the individuals have agreed, I will transmit, I will bounce your traffic around in order to protect your right to anonymously access the Internet. Um, it's our view that only by having a real technology, something real and tangible, will people realize when folks come to take it away from you that there is something you could lose. Um, and lest you think that this is just the realm of people trying to download movies without getting caught, um, one of the reasons we're building the network is because as we build it, we hear from more and more law enforcement personnel, uh, in fact, even naval intelligence, uh, all, a whole host of users, not just legitimate users, but, you know, way legitimate users, saying that these services are critical to what they do. Law enforcement officers need to be able to monitor what they believe is unlawful activity without tipping off that they're law enforcement officers. Intelligence officers need to report back to different uh, uh, officers in ways that guarantee that they are not traceable to their then location. There are a whole host of perfectly legitimate uses for anonymity, and we think it's critical that we start building that portfolio now so when the storm hits, there is something we can say, wait a minute, this matters. 
I think libraries have an incredible uh, number of those stories uh, that I'm sure all of you are familiar with. Everything from the, you know, I've heard from uh, friends of mine who grew up in small towns who talked about the kinds of things they were able to read at their hometown library, that they would never have felt comfortable buying those books from the local bookstore with, you know, who knows who watching what they were reading. Um, So, again, I think collecting those stories is important. Um, So the last issue I want to touch on briefly is this question of treaties. (laughs) Copyright lawyers in too many contexts celebrate the so-called internationalization of copyright law, often in the same breath with the so-called harmonization of copyright law. Now, who can be opposed to harmony, right? Who wants discord? That makes no sense, right? Well, it turns out that what some people perceive as discord, I would argue, is what perhaps unfashionably these days should be called autonomy, should be called self-determination. The United States, last time I checked, it seems to me there was just an episode last uh, Last month, I guess it was, when when a Supreme Court justice had the temerity of citing the law of another country to justify some American decision, was castigated by the Republicans uh, in power in Congress for having the nerve to say that we are not in command of our own national policy destiny. And yet, on the copyright side, we have no shortage of calls for compromising our ability to make our own copyright policy. So the reason I think this is relevant here uh, for the community that I'm talking to now, for EFF, for the public interest community here, is because there are two things happening in international treaties today that are receiving, I think, too little attention. One is the freezing of American law. You are finding today, although the, you know, the irony for those who remember this story, the DMCA, uh, a, a law much reviled by EFF uh, and uh, I think critically viewed by many in the library community. The DMCA came to us through what some have called policy laundering. Namely, content owners went to Congress and said, we want the following changes. Congress said no. Those same interests then managed to co-opt our international treaty negotiators, in particular through the auspices of Bruce Lehman, went overseas to the World Intellectual Property Organization, and argued for much the same changes to be incorporated into an international treaty document, the WIPO Copyright Treaty. Ironically, there too, they were told no. However, they did manage to get into the treaty language, not the language they wanted, but rather a much narrower version that says that you must provide, quote-unquote, effective protection for copyright owners who use technical protection measures, these so-called digital locks. Now, then they come back to the United States and armed with this treaty document, go back to Congress and say, now you have to enact the thing we asked you for before because now it's our international treaty obligations and you wouldn't want us to be Welchers, now would you? So, now that wasn't the only reason they got the DMCA, but that certainly was an important part of it. The interesting thing is when the DMCA was passed, I think everyone, at least everyone, you know, the, the people who I could find in the, uh, in, in the transcripts of the hearings, uh, admitted that what the United States enacted as the Digital Millennium Copyright Act went beyond what was required by that international treaty. The notion was we would lead by example. 
So, leading by example has now come to another round of what I would call policy laundry. So, in our free trade agreements with certain of our trading partners, Singapore, Jordan, Chile, Australia, a number of free trade agreements, the United States has put into those free trade agreements not the terms that they got in the WIPO copyright treaty, not that version, no. They've put into those treaties instead the version that was enacted, the DMCA. So you have here another example of internationally, the ratchet goes one way. And the thing, believe me, I bemoan this, uh, I think it's horrible enough, purely as a uh, viewed from the perspective of the citizens of those countries. The notion that Jordan needs a Digital Millennium Copyright Act strikes me as a great tragedy for the people of Jordan. But what is perhaps more relevant to us is that all of those agreements are bilateral, meaning it also makes us obligated as the United States to keep the exact same laws on our books. So effectively, what we've done now is tied our hands, frozen our copyright law, made it arguably a violation of our treaty obligations to reform the DMCA. When uh, Congressman uh, Lofgren asked the uh, trade authority, uh, she had introduced a bill that would have uh, amended and uh, improved, reformed the DMCA. She asked the trade representatives, uh, Department of Commerce, I think she asked, uh, said, Is my, would my bill, would it be lawful would it be consistent with our treaty obligations for Congress to pass my bill? The answer she got back, essentially, was it's a slightly more complicated story, but essentially the answer she got back is it's not a problem because if you pass the bill, we could always just go renegotiate all of our free trade agreements. Now, Sure, in theory, we could go renegotiate our trade agreements, but uh, I would submit that that would be a rather tall order, and I guarantee you that many in opposing DMCA reform will say, you're not just passing DMCA reform, you are reopening the Pandora's box of five in a few years, 10 in a few years after that, 15 free trade agreements with hundreds of our trading partners. Do you really want to do that? So we have there one problem, a freezing of American copyright law thanks to these reciprocal bilateral trade agreements. The second issue, I think, in some ways equally dangerous, is the creation of new ceilings in American law, tying our hands in a slightly different way. In the CAFTA, the Central American Free Trade Agreement, that is now negotiated, I think, in 2003, but is only now coming up in front of Congress for approval, in that uh, treaty there is a clause in Article 15.5, that says that there can be no compulsory licensing of television broadcast content for transmission over the Internet. What's that in there for? How did that get in there? Well, I can understand why those uh, why broadcasters and those who own the copyrights in broadcast material might be afraid that uh, uh, some of the Latin American countries that are uh, involved in CAFTA might want to create some sort of uh, compulsory license. Okay, fine. I, I can see that. I think it's, again, it seems to me that should be up to them to decide. It's their copyright law, after all. Copyright law is national. 
their copyright law is what protects the Hollywood movies in their country. It seems to me only fair they should be able to make their own choices. For those who want a history lesson, Peter can contribute this in great detail. The United States, after all, for the first hundred years of its development policy, chose to ignore, to not recognize at all foreign copyrights. So in other words, when the tables were reversed, we would just ignore all those foreigners' copyrights, just as in the case of Central American countries, that would be all of the Hollywood movies that show in their country. When we were in their shoes, we chose to simply not recognize any of those copyrights. Why? Well, because we were a net copyright importing nation, and so we weren't really terribly interested in expropriating all of our wealth into the hands of a bunch of British authors. One can argue that perhaps the countries of Central America should also be slightly less than thrilled to enter into an agreement that expropriates the, the money of its citizens into the coffers of Hollywood movie studios, who quite frankly, last time I checked, weren't exactly investing heavily in technology transfer or any other good things that I can tell uh, for the Central American economies. But setting that aside, whatever you may think about the equities of this kind of provision from the point of view of Central American nations, I would submit that it's a very dangerous thing from our own point of view. Because as I read the provision, and again, perhaps someone with more expertise than I can disabuse me of this, perhaps they'll just tell me, as they told Congressman Lofgren, that don't worry, they can renegotiate these things at a drop of a hat. But it seems to me that if I am the Vanderbilt Television News Archive, for example, or if I am the Internet Archive, for example, which also archives television broadcasts, this provision has just made it impossible for me to go to Congress and ask Congress, could you please enact a nonprofit library and archive compulsory license that would enable me to deliver television material to users over the Internet? Limit it how you like, for educational purposes, for scholarship purposes, for limited numbers, you know, Christmas tree this bill any way you like. It seems to me, arguably, that that is now a violation of our treaty obligations to our Central American trading partners. I would submit that is not the way we should be making copyright policy in advance. I would submit that we are not only freezing the laws we have today, but building ceilings that will prevent us from growing our copyright laws in the future. Um, and again, I just don't think trade agreements is a sensible place to shackle us in those ways. Now, again, I, I feel bad for the people in those countries, I, uh, but at a minimum, it seems to me a unilateral obligation is rather more honest. Right? It does seem to me that what the U.S. trade representative is, is principally interested in here is making sure that those countries obey our copyright laws and enforce the copyrights of our, you know, companies and expropriate that money to our shores. I understand they're the U.S. trade representative. That's their job. But it seems to me a very poor thing for that process to also be making our copyright policy. Um, I, again, I don't think that is something that's been paid that enough people are are paying attention to, and quite frankly, I mean, I, I'm not casting the blame here. The libraries are paying attention. But not only are not enough people paying attention, but the USTR is not listening, uh, which is perhaps its own separate problem. So anyhow, those, I hope, again, I, as I said, uh, in the after-dinner hour, it's good just to lead with murder. Um, so I, I hope I've led with enough burning buildings and crashing of cars 
uh, to have kept you awake. Um, I understand uh, there's uh, time just for a, a few questions, I guess. I, I, I'm three minutes short of my uh, official allotted time. But uh, I think there are a couple of microphones. If anyone wants to ask questions, I'm happy to answer. If not, I'm happy to let you go. I know it's late. So.